Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Elizabeth McPherson. Elizabeth is the CEO of the Scarborough and Rydale Carers Resource, an independent charity that supports and promotes the work of carers in and around the Scarborough and Rydale area. Areas. Elizabeth, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Hello, thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure. Now, um, the purpose of this discussion is to really understand your take on leadership, of course. And I think it's fair to say that leadership is something that's really been put to the test at the moment, isn't it? With the emergence of COVID-19, no less, and business leaders, organisation leaders, and also, of course, governments having to feel their way through what is ultimately an unprecedented crisis for us all. Um, Tell me, for somebody working in your line of work, um, Elizabeth, how has it been trying to navigate the last few weeks? Because I can imagine it has posed some incredible challenges for yourselves as well. Yes, absolutely. Um, Obviously, um, we have an office base where a lot of my workers um, do a lot of the support work out of there on telephone, on access to talk to people. And we've had to look at that and change that through uh, the way we work. So we instigated a home working policy and we, we asked staff to sort of start working from home. We had to then buy equipment like laptops, make sure they had proper uh, desks and uh, seating uh, to be able to work comfortably at home, you know, and and to make sure they keep them safe and well. We've had to look at ways of how we keep in touch with staff. So we have weekly meetings. We use things like Microsoft Teams so they meet every day. They made links with their... uh, colleagues to make sure that they have like cups of tea breaks which is great because you know emotionally and mentally this has had a massive impact on not just the carers that we support but the staff team and I'm very very keen to make sure that we support them the best way we can. Um, We've also brought in a welfare package to allow staff that are really struggling because they'll be worried about their own family situation and the virus that's going around but also they've come across some really big issues with the carers they're supporting and, you know, and having to deal with some quite serious mental health issues that are going through. But we've, we've adapted, we've changed, we've worked really hard and, and it's been very positive and very proactive. Um, and I'm very, very proud of the staff. And we've actually worked, you know, we've got hold and supported many, many more carers than we have done recently. And that renewed focus on mental health and well-being is one positive that's really come out of this uh, quite difficult and quite tragic time, as well as the fact that frontline workers, particularly within the care sector, are now being recognised far more for their work. And there have been great debates about how the care industry is funded over the, uh, the years. That's been an incredible issue. And the government is now saying that it's going to actually commit a root and branch review into the uh, the system to try and sort all of that out. So if we think about the future and what this might bring, this is really going to essentially pave the way for that to happen and hopefully we'll see some more positive changes within the sector in future as well, won't we? Yeah, I mean, we've been really, really lucky. You know, we support unpaid family carers, so we don't do any personal uh, work with carers. We do things like assessments, benefit advice, emotional support, activities uh, and, and, and stuff like that. 
and um, ensuring that, um, oh, sorry, I just want to say that uh, our funders have been really, really good to us and they've, we've had no issues with our funding. We've continued mm. to deliver on the service that we've wanted to do. So, but long term, yeah, there is going to be an issue, I think. You know, there isn't going to be the money in the system to continue to, to hopefully continue to do the work that we do. So I have got, I've got a bit of anxiety going forward to ensure that we keep, you know, supporting um, carers. We work with over 2,000 carers a year. That's not a small amount of people that we give that um, good support to. And when you've been supporting some of these uh, carers, um, there's been a great deal of debate during this time, hasn't there, about the clarity of certain government guidelines. From your experience, are people aware, fully aware of what's expected of them? Or do you think that there has been a little bit of sort of a distortion in what's ex- in what is expected in that sense? And maybe guidance has not been completely clear. Well, I, I think for many of ours, a lot of them are shielded or they're looking after someone that's been shielded. So they have got, mm. you know, they want to go out, they want to go to the shops, they're, or, they're, or they're frightened, absolutely terrified of, of going out. And now lockdown's lifted a little bit. We've now got the emotional impact that people haven't been out for 12 weeks and they're scared to go out. So we've got a lot of work to do with people to get their confidence back, get them to understand that, you know, there, there are uh, safety measures in place. So, but mental health-wise, as I said previously, we are, we are seeing a lot of, of issues with that, and I think that needs to be looked at government-wise to be funded and to and you know to make sure there are um, services available for people to access the, the mental health services. And I can imagine it's been an incredible challenge providing the service that you do during this time when people are suffering from certain traumas and, of course, exhaustion from the work and the hours that they're putting in. Because leadership comes with a certain element of people management anyway, and that goes for not just, of course, your own staff members, but also the people that you work with within your particular line of work. And during this this very, very sensitive time, it adds a whole new dimension to that idea of people management, doesn't it? And that comes with its own pressures, not just providing reassurance about the future for the staff that you work with who'll be looking to you to provide that but also those that you're helping out within the care sector that are putting all of these hours into just keeping vital services ticking over and vital care being provided yeah i know one of the things that you know i've been quite concerned is the amount of hours that the staff have been working and you know and the amount of contact that they've been giving uh, our carers which is wonderful because we need to do that but I also need to make sure that they are mentally well and safe. So I've encouraged them to continue to take holidays. I know they can't go anywhere, and we understand that. But to be able to put the laptop down, be able to leave and do anything in the house, but to have that time out away from that work. And I think that's been really, really uh, positive for some of the staff. You know, we've had a few of them had um, maybe some issues themselves that we've had to deal with. But I've got a, a really good senior management team and we are constantly aware of what's going on. And we keep in touch with our staff through Zoom, through Teams, through telephone contact. We're aware of what's going on. And also it has affected my senior management team and myself. You know, we're working flat out and there's only so long you can keep doing this before you need to have a full on break from from the work that we're doing. You know, when you're talking to people that are really struggling and they're offloading onto you, it does affect you yourself. So, you know, the 
my staff team are my priority for me at the moment. You know, I want to make sure they're safe and well, and I'm doing everything in my powers to ensure that. Even bringing in an external support, a coach and um, a counsellor to do that as well, which has been used. Um, but yeah, staff team is a priority and to ensure that they take some time out away from this work. It's, you know, otherwise you can't continue to do what we do. That's exactly right, Emma Elizabeth. And one thing I was interested to, to ask you as well is how has it been keeping the communication channels open remotely during this time? I understand, of course, you've been using Zoom to keep in touch with people. But of course, we're all having to show a degree of leadership from a distance during this time because that common workspace maybe until recently has um, essentially been deprived of us. So that's been a little bit of a challenge, hasn't it? Just keeping in mm. touch with people that way and just keeping things running smoothly. It has, you know, and, you know, tip maps off to the team. They're really positive. They're great. Mm. They've done, you know, after we've had little activities, um, little sort of quiz sessions we've done uh, and that sort of thing, just to keep the links going because, you know, we have the most amazing team and we have amazing team because they've made friendships, they've made um, links with seeing each other in the office. Sometimes they go out on socials and that sort of thing. So when you take that away and it's only through a telephone or just an image on, on a computer, it does make a difference. And, you know, I'm, we're very, very um, – so I'm, I'm concerned about that. But because the staff team have got good links with each other, they are, have been incredibly supportive in and out of work hours. And I'm encouraging that because I think that's needed. Um, and, and, you know, like every week we're in touch with people. We have meetings every week. We have group meetings. And that's hard in itself to keep that level of support going. But, you know, hopefully this isn't going to last forever uh, and we can look at how we reintegrate back into the office. I don't think we'll ever go back into mm. full-time office work, but, you know, it, it, it's allowed us to rethink how we work. And I think that's been a real positive going forward. Mm, I would agree with that. Certainly, there's been a real focus, um, as well as on mental health and well-being, on working practices and sustainability, amongst other things. Do people need to be oh. travelling um, certain um, amounts of uh, distance and hours? Um, and that's also something that's quite positive um, as well. But if we do yeah. think about um, what the new normal may well hold um, over the next year or so, um, Elizabeth, before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme, what do you yeah. actually envision happening for yourself and for the Scarborough and Rydale Carers Resource? And indeed, what do you hope to achieve during that period as we move toward the new normal? Well, like I said, I think we'll be doing a bit of half and half, half in the office, half at home working for the staff team, uh, because that's been far more proactive productive for us but also you know our our tender for our carer services is going out next year so we have those sort of worries coming up and but with there are other opportunities out there um you know we have diversified a little bit in the work we do i mean our core is always going to be working with unpaid family carers but we're looking at what we work with other people that are experiencing loneliness and isolation we have a home from hospital service and these have allowed us to diversify a bit to ensure that our income keeps coming in and, and, and make us attractive to funders out there as well. So it, it will be all hands on deck. It will be uh, looking out for what we can do uh, and, uh, you know, and, and just going forward. I, I don't know what the future is going to hold, and that's a scary thing. But all I know is that the work that we've done now, the support that we've done now, has been invaluable. And we do make a difference to the people that we support. And, you know, what more can we ask for? 
I don't think there's any doubt about that whatsoever, um, Elizabeth, for sure. And, you know, I think it would actually be fantastic, given how informative it's been today, if at some point in the next year we could actually catch up just to reassess exactly what the new normal is bringing to yourself and to the carer's resource and also just understand how things are getting on behind the scenes um, as well. I think that would be really, really fascinating. I would be more than happy to do that. Um, and I, I agree with you. I think the changes would be fascinating. And, and also, mm. just one thing, it's about the, the need from people that want our support, how that changed, because I think that will change, you know, what mm. they're needed now. I think that, that will, you know, we're going to keep an eye on that. Uh, but yes absolutely I'd be more than happy to catch up in a year and and let you know how we're getting on Mm. exactly because it's easy to see um, that um, demand for certain services is going to increase and especially with the mental health and well-being side of things because there will be a great deal of trauma to come out of this even though there has been one or two positives and hopefully the resilience that it will breed within people the character building that experience of crisis management that's ultimately hopefully going to benefit people within the uh, the long run as a positive aspect Um, it's a shame um, yeah, what's but uh, carry on, Elizabeth, for sure. No, no, no. I was say, I, I, I hope so, and I think so. You know, mm-hmm. resilience. Uh, you know, people are astounding, aren't they? And and mm-hmm. inspirational of you know the resilience people have. We have a young carer service, and they've just been incredibly inspiring. And the way they've come together and they work and they and going forward. So yes, it, it, it's, it's, we're going to take all this good practice and and go with that as we move on. And it's going to be fantastic just to see how all of that uh, plays out. It's a real shame that we can't, of course, have more time on the programme today because we could discuss it long into the afternoon, I'm sure, Elizabeth, I've no doubt of that. Um, But in the meantime, most importantly, until we do touch base again in the future, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on because as we both well know, I'm sure, we're certainly not out of the woods with this one yet and there's still plenty of time for things to change. Thank you, I will do. Thank you very much. That was Elizabeth McPherson speaking, the CEO of the Scarborough and Rydale Carers Resource. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and the Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now, despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding various senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015, anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the 
the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness. But all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain 
historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government. I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and... Um, and the U.S. and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country 
that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chivying people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, 
experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack? What happens if there's an energy shutdown? Sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. Because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about 
is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have could take that. And therefore we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer 
where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, 
and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sukir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Sukir need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir uh, Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, 
uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, for the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.